0: The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. It's a season of Advent. What exactly is Advent? Um, It is from a Latin word which means coming and. In the church, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we celebrate Advent and... Um It acknowledges the waiting and hoping of the baby Jesus really parallels the prayerful expectation we have in the coming of Jesus again. So that's really what Advent's about, and we wanted to celebrate that here at the end. So the past couple weeks, we've been looking at the Christmas story. Ryan started a couple weeks ago um, by looking at the story of Mary asking, how can this be when she finds out she's going to have a baby? And he really pointed us to what the angel Gabriel said to Mary as a lens through which you can see not only Christmas, but your lives. Do not be afraid, and how often we don't, um, we don't listen to that. And last week, Brenna did an awesome job um, looking at the interactions between two pregnant cousins, Mary and Elizabeth, and how it's through relationship we can experience a profound love and safety in our relationship with God, and in our relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. So, that brings us to tonight. We're doing something a little bit different. Um, We're going to look at the Christmas story through Ryan Church rapping, and I'm going to beatbox.
1: This is how we do. uh. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Just kidding. Calm down.
0: I don't know why that was funny. It wasn't a joke. No, uh... We've got some questions. We're going to do a and a some questions that have to do with Christmas and the Christmas story. Um, we're going to address those, and then we're going to have communion together. But before we do that, we want to take a look again at Luke chapter 1, because a lot of the questions come from that. So let's take a look. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, "'Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you.'" Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus.'" "'He will be great.'"
1: And so we want to engage a few of these questions uh, together uh, tonight. And we do hope, by the way, uh, Janie and I on behalf of the whole staff, really, that the inn is always a safe place for you to ask questions that uh, can sometimes be a bit confusing. Maybe even uh, there have been times where you've asked questions and and even felt shamed in a community of faith because it sounded like you were being unfaithful to uh, question such things. We have this is a place where you feel free to do that. So, first question is is this? It's around the virgin birth. Was Mary really a virgin? And do I have to believe this in order to be a Christian? To tackle this question, I want us to to at least look at at two ways that we might begin to lean into this. And in my mind's eye, there are they're kind of two different sides of the spectrum. The first way we might do it is this is to is to ask the question um, at the beginning and quite. An kind of negatively. Okay, what if the virgin birth didn't happen? Uh, what if, if this conception of Jesus, Mary's conception of Jesus, was fully by natural means? And by natural means, we mean the means that you learned about when your parents had the talk with you, you know, Janie, when you were told about when a man and a woman love each other and that whole bit. Okay, that's what we mean by natural means. If that were the case, what this means is that we have a man, okay, born of a mother and a father, that would then become God. Well, if you've been listening, one of the key aspects of the Christmas story is that this is not man becoming God, but rather, this is God becoming man. It's a very critical difference. Now, to think about it even a step further, as Janie and I talked with our resident apologetics guru Dwayne Morris, uh, who, who many of you know, he's he's awesome on things like this. He held, he also noted that if if it were true that that Jesus was conceived by fully natural means. Then that means Mary is giving birth to a natural son. And if, if that man is to become God, it is as almost as if God is, is then coming and somehow stealing Mary's son and making him something other than Mary's son. So so when we think about, about a virgin birth and about this announcement of a virgin birth, a conception of the Holy Spirit, it's consistent with how we see a gracious God, right? He's letting Mary know there's going to be something a little bit different about this child that you will have. I'm not going to steal this little person from you. Okay, the other place that we start the question, if if that first question has to do with what if the virgin birth didn't happen, the other place that we might start is on the other end of the spectrum where we, we start with the question of, do I believe that Jesus is the son of God? If through your reading of the rest of uh, the stories of the gospels, that you see that in Jesus' life and his ministry, the things that he did, and then in his death, And then finally, in his glorious resurrection, you are somehow persuaded that, yes, Jesus has won my respect, and I am going to call Jesus Christ Lord. Well, then we're saying that this Jesus, this Jesus that we call the Christ, the anointed one, is Lord, then somehow had to be different, right? So then we back up and say, if we're going to to say that, wow, this person is different, then that means his birth, his beginning, then had to come through a different, even miraculous means. Now, this shouldn't surprise us too much. There are a lot of stories of miraculous births, in, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. There's five earlier stories of creation and birth in the Bible that also reveal that God is critically and intimately involved in what? The creation of human life. Isaac, Samson, Obed, Samuel, and then the story that we've also read with John the Baptist were all conceived by miraculous means. And in this final miraculous conception of, of Jesus, um, God explicitly is, is again revealed as creator. Now, it is similar to the previous stories in that there is a miraculous birth. But it's different in that it's virginity as opposed to barrenness. There's no yearning or expectation for a child on Mary's part. She was not yet married. But there is, instead, it's a surprise of creation. And in all of these stories, these six stories, the ones that, that are noted up there in Jesus, of course, uh, they take the so-called natural process of reproduction, conception, pregnancy, and birth, and reveal God working in impossible conditions to bring forth life. And I stop there to just know that's, that's at the heart and character of God, one that is that uh, it has a, it's a priority to bring forth life. Now, Eugene Peterson connects a lot of dots in a very ex, uh, eloquent explanation of the virgin birth that I want to read to you. The spirit that comes upon Mary and conceives the Savior echoes the spirit that hovered over the waters in the account of creation in Genesis. The earth was void and without form when that spirit appeared. Just so Mary's room was, a vo- was void until the spirit of God filled it with a child who was his son. Birth. Birth. Any birth is our primary access To the creation work of God. And Jesus' virgin birth provides and maintains the focus that God Himself is personally present and totally a participant in creation, which is good news indeed. So, when we talk about the virgin birth, we are talking about God as a giver of life, we are talking about God as a creator, and ultimately, what is most important is that Jesus is different. Yes, he was born a man, born of a woman, but he is also born of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is different. Jesus is different. And so it makes sense then, right, that his conception, his coming to being would be different.
0: Our next question is kind of connected to that. Um, It says, why a baby? Isn't there a better way for the almighty God to say, my powerful presence is with you? Uh, Similar to um, the Old Testament that Ryan mentioned, there's prophecy and precedent in the Old Testament to talk about um, the birth of a baby. What uh, Jasmine read earlier, Isaiah 9, 6, is a great example of this. For For to us, a child is born, a son is given. Um, all four Gospels refer to Old Testament prophecy when talking about Jesus' birth, and some of them talk about Abraham and the lineage, Abraham, Isaac, the house of David, all of these pointing to the birth of Jesus in a particular family as an Israelite. Now, I think Matthew and Luke especially really want us to know that Jesus was born a wee little babe. And the reason that is because anybody uh, who was any Israelite at the time Jesus was born would have known the Messiah was going to come, or they thought they knew. The Messiah was going to come as this mighty military commander on horseback, like sword flinging around his head. And he was going to bring vengeance and redemption against all Israel's enemies. The chosen one would have the wisdom of Solomon. He would have the godliness of Moses. He would have the military know-how of Joshua. Um, he would be charismatic as David. Now, Jesus was a leader and a Messiah, but he was definitely not those things. And I think there was an intention in separating who he was as a Messiah from the expectation that people had. In the realm of world history, Israel is like this tiny, nothing nation. Right? When you look at world history, it's really just this tiny little place that every other bigger empire conquered. That's who we knew Israel to be. And yet God said, I'm going to choose these people to change the world. And the same could be said about God coming in a baby, right? God could have come in all other ways, and yet God says, um, I'm going to come and let the tiny baby be the savior of the universe. The story of scripture is one of those that are lowly born, that are oppressed, that are left behind, that are in bondage, changing the world. And that is consistent with Jesus coming as a baby, changing the world. And also, how could we follow Jesus as a man if he, if we hadn't seen him crawl as a child? How could we believe that he had undergone temptation and lived through what it meant to be the difficult years of our adult life? Um, how could we, know that he would be our savior, if that were the case. If he hadn't endured the awkward middle school years with the bad haircut like
1: church did. Some people thought it was sexy. Oh.
0: <laughs> well, I'm kidding. Jesus, Jesus probably never had a bad haircut. But Jesus endured humanity in order for us to know that he moved into the neighborhood for our sakes. And the birth of a baby brings with it, this is the last thing I'll say about it, the birth of a baby brings with it a vulnerability that I think you can't find in any other circumstance. God became vulnerable so that we would know that we could be vulnerable as well. And it's in our brokenness that we find a savior. We think that vulnerability is weakness, but really, Brené Brown says this, it is courage to, to let yourself be helpless. Jesus was helpless, to be dependent, to have the humility of leaning on other people. Jesus came to flip the expectations of the world upside down. The last shall be first. Those who are on the bottom will be raised up, the broken will be made whole, and a tiny baby will save the
1: world. So it's interesting to me that in this story, we have this tiny baby, uh, something that, as Janie just said, very vulnerable and at first glance, insignificant, right? But then as part of this story, there's also something that's very spectacular, again, that, that we see in angels, this interaction that Mary had with the angel Gabriel. And then I hope you'll come back last week, or last come back last week, yeah. I do public speaking for a living. Come back next week when we see how this story finishes and and encounter this multitude of angels that come. So what do we do with angels? What do we do with the angels in in this story? And it really gets at the question of why don't we have experiences like that? Why doesn't God speak to me like God speaks to Mary through a messenger like the angel Gabriel? So let's talk a little bit about angels. First, as Scripture testifies to it, the best definition I can give you for an angel is this. An angel is a spiritual being, a messenger serving God and supporting mankind. Okay, straightforward enough. My guess is that there'd be very few people in here that would challenge that. Now, this is where the definition can get a little bit muddy. It's with the phrase spiritual beings. Now I know when I think of an angel the first image that I get of of this angel is something that looks kind you know kind of like a human maybe a little bit ghost like they have a halo they have wings and you know there's there's something special they have a a singing voice like Janie Stewart karaokeing a Wilson Phillips song or something like that But I'll be I'll be honest that it, I'm best attempted to buy into kind of these, these cultural ideas of what an angel is. How many people here are familiar with It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, you know the phrase, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Okay. I kind of like that idea of, of what an angel is. But the Bible uses, uses these words in different ways. In Hebrew, it's the word malech. And in Greek, it's the word angelos. And it notes that angels are ordinary messengers as well. For example, prophets are sometimes referred to with the same words. So what am I saying? That I'm willing to stand in front of you if you were to push me and say, Ryan, do you believe in angels? Yes, I believe in angels. The Bible gives testimony to the reality of angels. And I believe that angels are still real and active today. But I'll also be straight up with you and saying I have not had an interaction with the type of being that I described earlier. This ghost-like human with wings and a, and a singing voice and a halo. But here's where I have experienced messengers. I have experienced service in mentors. In friends, and frankly, in you, in in the students that I've worked with over the years, there have been many, many scores of people that have somehow communicated uh, the truth of God to me. And for that, I'm grateful. It often came in a moment where I needed it. I think one of the things that helps us understand why this might be, why our interactions that we have with the spiritual might be a little bit different, comes from the very popular or, or, or very familiar words for at least some of you in Acts 2. And the apostle Peter noting that the fulfillment, noting the fulfillment of the prophet Joel after Christmas and after Easter on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2 verse 17 it says this, that in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. An issue in Acts 2 and an issue in this question of angels is how do we hear, how do we experience God? A little bit later on in Acts There is a little difference between the role of angels and the role of the Holy Spirit that's described here at Pentecost. And in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul goes on to say that angels are actually subordinate to humans. So uh, a preoccupation for us in wanting to have an experience with an angel, Paul would likely say is a little bit foolish because they're actually below you in the hierarchy that, that he's working from. On this side of Christmas and really Easter and Pentecost as well, I don't think we need to be super concerned with hearing God through these supernatural beings because God has given us And as Acts 2 said, those around us, all people, sons and daughters, the Holy Spirit. Why do we need angels when we have the Holy Spirit? Because what the Holy Spirit first and foremost does is is, is this, okay? Let's pretend for a moment that Janie is Jesus, okay? Yeah, easy, easy for you to envision, right? The Holy Spirit basically does this, okay? You can probably barely see me. But the Holy Spirit is constantly, first and foremost, drawing attention to Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit does a lot of different things. Healing, like the text says, the gift of prophecy and speaking in tongues, all these spectacular things. But the the thing, first and foremost, that it does is draw attention to Jesus. Now, as we seek to hear the voice of God and experience the voice of God, when we have that experience, what do we do? The Apostle Paul says, test the spirits. If the spiritual realm is real and we are people seeking to attune ourselves to the spirit and to the voice of God, it's critical then that we we put those things that we hear, that we attribute to God to the test as we noted earlier, Brenna did a great job last week of talking about how Mary, after she had had this encounter with the angel Gabriel, one of the first things she does after she asks a question is go and to run to Elizabeth and find assurance in community. The Spirit's been poured out on all people. When we think we have heard the voice of God, go talk to somebody and see what they're, what they're hearing as well. Uh, is it, the second thing would be this. Is it consistent with the scriptures? It seems to me that, that the things that we would hear from God are always, always, always going to be consistent with the God that we meet in scripture. And then third is this. Particularly if you're frustrated in not hearing the voice of God and not having this audible experience, that's why we have this. It's an opportunity for us to hear afresh, to hear once again the words, the voice of God in Scripture. And so as we we seek to to hear and experience God, let us be reminded that the Holy Spirit is with us and that as we get these messages, as we hear these words, to test them.
0: Um, This is our... Last question. Gabriel says to Mary, do not be afraid. But later in Luke chapter one, Mary says, his mercy extends to those who fear him. What does it mean to fear the Lord in a way that scripture refers to it? The two references to fear um, in Mary's case are slightly different. When the angel says, do not be afraid, it's be far from panic. Don't be anxious. And what Mary's talking about, the fear of the Lord, is actually a way of life. The fear of the Lord in itself is a concept. What? Right? Okay. That's weird. Yeah. Our call to fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord, appears in Scripture 138 times. So it's something that we should pay attention to. Psalm 39.4 is a good example of it. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The frustrating thing is the translation is a little bit wonky into English because of the way we understand the word fear. Um, but it is a good idea for us to be afraid of God. God created the world and everything in it, including us, and God could destroy the world and everything in it, including us. We should be afraid of God because that's the case. But the synonyms for that, like worshipful respect, awe, um, reverence, they aren't totally adequate. The fear of the Lord that Mary's talking about is fear with the scary removed. The four words in English are two words in Hebrew, yerat, adonai. And they are bound together in Hebrew, meaning they mean one thing together. So you can can say the fear of the Lord means one thing. Think of it like... The, like this, how it's up there with dashes in between it. It will help. Oh, maybe we don't have the slide. Anyways, think of it as, oh, there it is. Fear of the Lord kind of, kind of mashed together. That phrase in the Bible is telling us how we are to live. It's talking about the fact that we cannot be separated from God. If we live with fear of the Lord, we live our lives focused not on ourselves, but paying attention to God, a God who is holy and sacred, yet condescends to be with us. We sometimes have too much of a casual relationship with God. We forget about the holy and the sacred. Now, here's where the scary part is removed. If I fear the Lord, I am overwhelmed not because I am a fallen sinner. I fear the Lord. I am overwhelmed because I am forgiven by a Savior. That's the difference between a fearful of anxiety and a fearful of love. Still with me? Makes sense. Think about this. What happens when you are frightened by something? Let's say it's night, you're alone, and you hear an unfamiliar noise in another room. What happens to your body? <laughs> what happens to my body then, right? The adrenaline starts pumping, your heart starts beating fast, your breath comes short, right? And, um, you start, fe- y- your senses become alert. I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like I have like the hearing of a dog. I can see like a cat in the dark. I could probably like flip over a car, right? When those, everything's like like on high alert. When we are fearful of something, we are hyper aware of what's happening around us. And when we are fearful, we realize we are not in control. What the writers of scripture are telling us to fear the Lord, they are telling us, pay attention. Stay on your toes. Keep your eyes and your ears and your hearts open to the fact that God is at work. God's revelation, God's goodness, God's hope, God's mystery is all around us. And if we don't have the fear of the Lord, we're going to miss it. The fact that the fear of the Lord is kind of this fuzzy concept that we can't really wrap our minds around is kind of the amazing part of it. And I think it captures the mystery of God better than anything else. Eugene Peterson says that we don't understand mystery, we inhabit it. We don't control mystery, we live in it. And the fear of the Lord is about living into the fact that God is more and better than we are. A common experience some of you might have had that maybe will give you an idea of encountering or interacting with the holy and the sacred is a newborn baby. I mean, brand new, in the hospital, brand new baby. Maybe you've had an experience of that. When we approach that baby, we are shy and we're anxious, And we are amazed that this is happening and we get to be a part of it. But what happens when you hold that baby? There is definitely fear. But at the same time, there is joy. It's awe-inspiring to be in the presence of something like that. That moment, that moment of stillness, of mystery, of hyper-awareness, That is a fear of the Lord moment. That is what we're called to. This Christmas, when you're thinking about the brand new baby Jesus, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, dwell on the fear of the Lord. And the fact that the holy God of the universe condescends to be with us.
1: I think my hope for us in the balance of this season, as you finish finals, as we uh, move towards Christmas, is that we would be hyper aware. And we would be hyper aware in these short days up here in Seattle. These days where it doesn't get light till after eight and it's dark as we walk home at 4.30. It would be hyper aware of the longing we have that the light would penetrate darkness that those days would become a little bit longer the hope that we have that heaven indeed penetrates earth and also aware of the need that we have within that longing that we long uh, for uh, we long to be rescued And we long to know the presence and the power and the voice of God. We come to this table uh, to remember the hope that we have. To remember that this one who came down as a little baby, then lived and gave his life willingly Voluntarily, lovingly for us, uh, that we would know grace, that we would know truth, that indeed we would know love. For it was on the night that he was betrayed that our Lord took bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body. Take and eat.
0: In the same way, he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take and drink. This cup is a new covenant sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of all sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we declare Jesus' death until he comes again.
1: Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are, that you came and you moved into our neighborhood fully man. Fully God. This is a mystery that we don't understand. And we are grateful for this table where we have the opportunity to put something in our hands, to put something in our body, to remember the reality of your grace, your love, and in fact, the the mystery of who you are uh, in our lives. And so God, as we come to this table, uh, be real to us and be real to us throughout this season as you have been to those who have gone before us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.